Welcome to y'all. Good morning today. Good to see you. Do as I say, not as I do. Anyone else hear that line growing up? Do as I say, not as I do. But dad, you stay up late all the time watching TV. Well, son, you're not dad. Do as I say and not as I do. In other words, you need to follow my advice, which in this case means doing the opposite of what I'm doing. Maybe a better example is of a, a mother who smokes. She can't kick the addiction herself, but she truly doesn't want to pass along the habit to her daughter. So she humbly says, daughter, do as I say, not as I do. In some cases, it's good advice. However, when it comes to our relations with non-Christians, this line doesn't cut it. Instead, we must practice what we preach. Instead, we must not only talk the talk, but we must also walk the walk. We must grow into Christ's likeness, as we just sang in the last song, so that we can say to others what Paul said in the New Testament, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Any attempt to share the message of Jesus, apart from a living demonstration of the message, falls flat. But the good news is that God enables us to shine like stars. Yes, us who are gathered here, God enables us to shine like stars in the world. So that's what we're going to explore in this fourth week of our series on evangelism, how we attract others by our daily way of life. Before we go here, a brief recap for those who maybe missed a week or two. So we've already focused on the central task of the church, to become apprentices of Jesus, disciples of Jesus who make disciples of others. And we've already witnessed the heart of Christ for people, the motivation. It's a heart of compassion for the hurting and the lost. We are motivated by love. So that was week one and two. Week one taught us to pray, Lord, help me to live and love like Jesus. Week two taught us to pray, God, send out more workers into the harvest, including me. And then last week, Pastor Stephanie reminded us that we're not alone. In fact, first and foremost, we communicate the gospel by being a community of love, by being the witness. After all, our community is one of the key things into which we're inviting people. As Jesus himself said, they will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. So, now we build on these first three weeks by focusing today on the biblical model of evangelism as daily living. As Jesus himself taught, let your light shine before others like a, like a city on a hill, right? Like a, uh, like a salt, a salt that's uh, good for the earth. Let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So before we read a longer portion of scripture about this, let us pray once more. Father in heaven, you know how difficult it is for us to pay attention. We live in an age of distraction. We struggle to pay attention in general, let alone to pay attention to your word, especially when it calls us to change. So we ask for your grace. We ask for the strength of your spirit. 
triune God be at work in our minds this morning. Protect them from distraction. Direct them to your word of life. And by the end of the service, may we leave this place glowing with the light of Christ. Amen. Pay attention to God's word spoken through a prominent disciple of Jesus named Paul. He's the one who could honestly say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. These are Paul's words to his beloved congregation in Philippi. Chapter 2. Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed me, not only in my presence, but much more now in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without murmuring or arguing, so that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, in which you shine like stars in the world. It is by your holding fast the word of life that I can boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, but even if I'm being poured out as a libation over the sacrifice and the offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with all of you. And in the same way, you also must be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. When Paul wrote these words to the Philippians, the city of Philippi, modern-day Greek in Greece, it was a good place to live. Now, how can that be? Paul calls it crooked and perverse. How can it be a good place to live? Hear me out. Philippi was a Roman colony. The book of Acts chapter 16 tells us, and in fact, that's the text Kathy preached on a few weeks ago. Was That took place in Philippi, the thing with the jailer and all that, uh, all that drama. <laughs> so Philippi was a Roman colony. This meant that it meant that its citizens enjoyed all sorts of privileges and benefits, thanks to the Roman government. It's also safe to say that it was a relatively wealthy city. Many retired soldiers lived there, having received a plot of farmland as part of their pension. And so it was a good place to retire. All of this being the case, Roman patriotism was especially strong in Philippi. To live in Philippi was to live with a certain civic dignity. People from neighboring towns envied you. You were, more, you were more than proud of your hometown if you lived in Philippi. So this is not the kind of place that you enter and immediately think to yourself, this place is crooked and perverse. This neighborhood looks sketchy. We better get out of here. It's not the impression you get after a first visit to Philippi. And yet, the Apostle Paul still calls it crooked and perverse. How can he say that about Philippi? He can say it because he sees through the veneer of civility. He can see through the mask of niceness. With his keen spiritual insight, Paul sees beyond the city's surface-level image, the lush green grass, the well-kept streets, the air of being a good citizen. Behind all these attractive things, Paul sees darkness, emptiness, Injustice, hypocrisy, a lack of love, especially for the stranger. Above all, he sees a lack 
of knowledge in God, the God who has been remarkably revealed in the person of Jesus, the one who is full of grace and truth. So Paul's spiritual insight in his spiritual eyesight. It's made even sharper by the fact that he's imprisoned in Philippi as he writes this letter. His vantage point is just a little different than the vantage point of the retired Roman soldier living a cushy life. All the stuff that distracts most of us from seeing things as they really are, the distractions are stripped away for Paul. Prison will do that to you, I'm told. So he's able to see the city of Philippi for what it is. Crooked and perverse, he calls it. The city of Philippi is a city of darkness. We have to understand that these are not the angry words of a dissatisfied customer. Paul is not throwing out judgments for the prideful pleasure of it. The fact that he's behind bars does not make him bitter in spirit. Surprisingly, it has the opposite effect. The words written from his cell to the Philippians, they're some of the most joyful words we have in all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, and he wrote 13 of them. Paul's joyful because he's in jail for Christ's sake, and by God's grace, he feels a sense of God's real presence in his sufferings, even in that jail cell. So if you can imagine, Paul is actually quite joyful in spirit when he calls the city crooked and perverse. I encourage you to read the entire letter later today. It's just four pages. You can do it. So why does Paul use such harsh language to define the city of Philippi? I think it's because he understands what uh, leadership guru Max Dupree understood. Dupree is a household name in West Michigan where we lived for many years. He's uh, one of the owners of Herman Miller, office furniture place. He writes this, he says, the first responsibility of a leader is to define reality. The last is to say thank you. In between, the leader is both a debtor and a servant. Paul, the servant and the leader of these folks, he's defining reality for his followers. The reality that Paul sees surrounding the Christians in Philippi is a city that is crooked and perverse, despite all the glossy appearances. But the point of Paul's letter isn't to talk about the darkness. The point is to encourage this small band of Jesus followers to continue living in the reality of Jesus' invisible kingdom. To continue living and loving like Jesus, united to God through Christ by the Holy Spirit. That's how Paul advises these disciples to respond to the darkness. He does not ask them he does not ask them to free him from prison. He does not ask them to get revenge on those who put him there. He does not ask them to tweet about how bad the people are. Neither does he ask them to isolate themselves from the rest of the city dwellers. Instead, he encourages them to shine like stars. Shine like stars, Church of Philippi. Shine like stars, Church of Heartland. That's Paul's aim in naming the reality of darkness that resides in the city. He's not trying to complain. He's not even bitter about the whole deal of his imprisonment. Rather, his aim is to equip the infant church in Philippi to shine like stars in the midst of such darkness. But the end goal is not about the shining. 
They are to shine like stars so that at the name of Jesus, everyone in heaven and on earth and under the earth might bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's how Paul teaches these young Christians to respond to the spiritual darkness around them. He teaches them to shine, to shine like stars in the world by the way they live their daily lives. They are to be blameless and innocent children of God, and their daily lives are to shine like stars against the backdrop of a culture that looks good on the inside, but on, that looks good on the outside, but on the inside is rotting away. I suspect God wants us to teach, this, teach us the same lesson. Now, I can't emphasize enough just how essential it was for the Christians in Philippi to shine like stars. If the good news of Jesus was ever going to take root in that city, these disciples of Jesus had to shimmer like jewels in their life. You see, the non-Christians in the city, they did not simply lack information. It wasn't that they were just unaware that Jesus was Lord. Rather, they believed deep down that someone else was Lord, and his name was Caesar. So the challenge for the Christians was not simply a matter of filling in the blanks for their non-Christian neighbors. The challenge was much, much greater as it is for us. The challenge involved overturning rival gods that have been honored for generations. For the Philippians, this was the god of Roman patriotism, to which they confessed Caesar as Lord. Caesar is the Roman emperor, the, the one at the top of the food chain. And that's why Paul's in prison. It's this clash over religious allegiances. For the Philippians, Caesar was Lord, and for Paul, Jesus was Lord. This was not simply a difference in personal preference. This was a difference in worldview, in outlook, in allegiance, and in lifestyle. So when Paul attempts to communicate the good news of Jesus as an act of love, it's perceived as a threat to the status quo. At the heart of this religious conflict is the question of who's in charge, who will provide our security, and who will help us live the good life. For the faithful, patriotic citizens of Philippi, the time-honored answer was Caesar and his empire. That's what their parents taught them. Caesar's in charge. Caesar will provide your security. And stay on Caesar's side, and he'll help you live the good life. He'll take care of you. He'll give you a place to retire. Now, for the folks who witnessed the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the answer was different. It was Jesus and his empire of love. <laughs> Jesus is in charge. Jesus will provide your security. Jesus will help you live the good life. Now, you tell me who was right 2,000 years later. Caesar or Jesus? One has 2.2 billion people who profess his name, and the other is the name of a salad dressing. Jesus or Caesar. So it's this conflict of interests that lands Paul in prison. And it's this same conflict of interests 
that raises the level of importance on our daily living as Christians. If we are ever going to attract non-Christians to Christ, we must shine like stars, my friends. This is even more true, I think, if we are to attract younger generations. Research from the Barner Group reveals some of the perceptions that young people have about Christians. 85% perceive, perceive Christians to be hypocritical. 85%. That is, they perceive a lack of congruence between our lives and what it is we say we believe. As you can imagine, that's not attractive. <laughs> now, they can call us silly. They can call us weird. They can even say we're out of touch with reality. After all, we live in the reality of God's presence, something which they might, may not be familiar with yet. But they should not be able to call us hypocrites. Friends, this is what's at stake in our daily living. If we fail to grow into a life that reflects more and more of Christ's character, then we fail to persuade young people that Jesus is worth considering at all. So before we can get an honest hearing from our neighbors, we have to earn their trust. Same situation as the small group of Christians in Philippi. And the way they earned others' trust was by living and loving like Jesus, by demonstrating the message, by being the Bible that people read. And so the way they earned their trust uh, was by daily living out the gospel. And by this way, they slowly built trust with non-Christians. By living out Christ's values and priorities, they provoked the curiosity of others. And eventually, as they shined like stars against the backdrop, the dark backdrop of a broken society, eventually they challenged others to receive the life of Christ for themselves. This is what happened in tiny pockets all throughout the Roman Empire in those early years of the church, even amidst persecution that was sometimes violent, even murderous. The historical growth of Christ's church stands at it as its own witness to the effectiveness of daily living as a way of evangelism. By daily living in the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of love, the kingdom of abundance, the kingdom without fear and worry. By daily living like Christ, we shine like stars in the darkness. That's the task God set before the Philippian church. That's the task God sets before us as well. It is the task of communicating the gospel as an act of love. Of course, where we live is much different than where these early Christians lived. The biggest difference, perhaps, is that the gospel of Jesus has already taken root in the greater Lafayette area. What I mean is that God has been at work here for quite some time, and if you have eyes to see, it's quite apparent. I'm not just talking about churches, but of course it includes those, but I'm talking about the hospitals, the schools, the libraries, the parks, the honest businesses. If you study history, friends, it's hard to imagine any of these things that benefit society. It's hard to imagine them without the message of Jesus working its way through Western culture. Read the history books. It's, it's really fascinating. 
but there are still parts of our, of our society that are crooked and perverse. Now, those words may seem strong, but let me just look at one of these Greek words. So, so the one that Paul uses for crooked is scolias. It's the, word of our, it's the root of our English word scoliosis. Anybody remember scoliosis testing in middle school? I was always terrified. I hated that day in middle school. Uh, you know, you'd look at this curved spine, and you'd think to yourself as a 12-year-old boy, does my back look like that? <laughs> I sure hope not. <laughs> and then you get the test, and, and then you turn, and it turns out it's not all that big of a deal, even if you have it. But So scoliosis, it's a condition in which your, your spine is curved, right? Scolios, that's the first Greek word Paul uses to describe the culture of Philippi. Crooked, curved, something that's detrimental to the health of the body if it's not fixed. Now tell me, is there anything about our society that's detrimental to our health? Surely you can come up with a list of things, as could I, and I suppose many of those things would be the same on both of our lists. Consumerism, sexism, racism, an age of distraction, we're tethered to our screens, we forget what it's like to be human. All sorts of things make our list, don't they? I don't want to elaborate on these because I think we all can agree that our society is not yet the society of love that Jesus envisions. This being the case, we have ourselves an opportunity. The things about our culture that are not quite right, they provide us with a black backdrop over which we can shine and glimmer like stars on a clear night sky. In other words, they provide us with an opportunity to communicate the gospel in the way we live our daily lives differently. So how can we live differently? How can we live according to the values and priorities of Jesus and his kingdom? How can we live in such a way that others are attracted to the teaching about God our Savior? That's the phrase Paul uses to his... Uh, letter to Titus. Make sure you're living in a way that's uh, attractive, that attracts people to the teaching about God, our Savior. Well, how do we do this? We, we have to work out. <laughs> you have to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says to the Philippians. Take heart. God is at work within you. God's the one who enables you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So these words from Paul, verses 12 to 13, they, they're brilliant. <laughs> they really are. They, contain the they, they help us understand the complex truth of how it is, the process of growing into Christ-likeness. Now, there are two extremes, I think, about spiritual growth that are out there. And these two verses from Paul, they help us to avoid the extremes. One extreme says that it's all God. That's how we grow. We just sit back passively, and God will grow us up spiritually. We just fall asleep, and the next thing we know, like a newborn who has become a toddler, we're growing up spiritually. A more common variation of this says that it's all God, we just need to show up at church, and then we'll grow spiritually. There's some truth in that, but <laughs> moving your body into the building is not enough. That's because your body can be here, but 
Distractions can move your mind elsewhere. Your body can be here, but your spirit can be disengaged. You understand what I'm saying, right? I struggle with this too when I visit churches. This, this is a common thing, okay? That, that's the, but so that's the, the first extreme Paul's trying to help us avoid. The position that says, my discipleship is all up to God. All I have to do is sit back, relax, and God will grow me up into Christ-likeness. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You've got to work it out. This salvation is something we've been given by grace alone, as we said in the Heidelberg. It's without merit. We aren't earning this. Grace, though, it's opposed, it's, it's, grace is uh, it's, it's not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. And so there is some effort involved on our part as Christians. We have to put into practice our salvation. Again, we're not earning anything, but if we want to shine like Jesus in a way that's attractive to others, we have to take responsibility for our own discipleship. Now, there's another extreme out there as well, and this extreme says it's all up to us. So one extreme, it's all up to God. The other, it's all up to us. Become the better you in seven simple steps. Our bookstores are lined with such self-help literature. Become what you should be, they say. The power to change rests in you and you alone. You have this some innate ability to improve your life. Graduates <laughs> will recognize you in, in a bit. And let me just say, you'll probably hear this line more than once in the coming weeks. Whether it's in the cards you receive or the speeches that you hear, People love to flatter graduates with the idea that their life is in their hands. I'm actually going to disagree with those folks. I believe your life is in God's hands. I think this actually relieves some of the anxiety that you may be feeling about constructing the perfect life for yourself. <laughs> that would be the case. It would all be up to you if there were no God. But relax. <laughs> God is and God loves. And yes, God loves you personally. He'll take care of you. So this extreme, that it's all up to us. Paul helps us avoid this too. Uh, this, so maybe a picture uh, of this extreme, huh? I think is of a toddler constantly running around but never sleeping and still expecting to grow up to be healthy and strong, right? That's not how it works either. According to Paul, it is God who is at work within you, enabling you to will and to work for God's good pleasure. So those are the, the two extremes. It's all up to God and it's all up to us. I think a better picture for spiritual growth is a picture of how humans actually grow physically. We need sleep, right? And we need activity. We need to rest doing nothing on our own, but allowing the mysterious work of sleep to have its way in us. And then we need to get up and start moving. Some of you have gone through physical therapy recently, and you know what I'm talking about, right? Rest, work. Rest, work. Rest in God's salvation. Work out your salvation. Rest in God's grace and unconditional love. Put that love into practice. Rest in God train like Jesus. I think this 
is a helpful analogy for our spiritual growth, for how we grow into Christ-likeness. We have to do something, yes. We have to work out. We have to hold on to the word of life, as our scripture text says. That means we're holding on for dear life, Jesus Christ, who is the word made flesh. And we're holding on to the words of scripture that tell us about Jesus. We have to train. (laughs) It's not all up to us. But even in our working, the primary worker is God. God working within us. God impressing his desires on our desires. That's what it means when it says enabling you to will. Some translations say enabling you to want. The things that I want in my life now are not the things I wanted 15 years ago. And that's a very good thing, believe me. God enables us to want the right things as we grow into Christ-likeness. Where are we at here? God impresses his desires and our desires. God is the one who changes our minds. God is the one who enables us to become what we already are in Christ by grace alone. Friends, God energizes us for the task ahead. So when we engage this process of discipleship, when we actively engage God, friends, we will shine like stars in our daily living. The brightness of our glow, the brightness of our glow will increase from one degree of glory to the next. That, my friends, is evangelism as daily living. So let me close by rereading Paul's words to the young Christians in Philippi. This time I'm going to read from Eugene Peterson's paraphrase called The Message. Listen to to these words. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you, God himself working and willing at what will give him the most pleasure. Do everything readily and cheerfully, No bickering, no second-guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the the light-giving message into the night, so I'll have cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof, you'll be living proof that... I didn't go to all this work for nothing. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. Let us pray. Lord, you are at work within us to become what we already are in Christ. We are the beloved. We are indwelt by your spirit. And we live in your unshakable kingdom. So we pray that you would help us to uh, live it out, help us to uh, walk the talk, help us to uh, experience life in your kingdom. We ask that your spirit would make this happen as we lean into you, as we put it into practice. In your name we pray, amen.